truth about race is still the truth about race. God made us in his image and that and only that is where we get our value. And we all belong to different cultures. Everybody's from a different culture in the world and cultures are not the world, Satan's system of deception. But every culture has been influenced, impacted and deceived by Satan's world system. And so cultural differences, hey, different kinds of food, different kinds of language, different expressions of how people have been deceived by God's enemy. And that's the truth about culture. And so supremacy, no, there's only one supremacy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and he is Jewish. And that's the way we're supposed to think biblically about the kinds of problems that are confronting us. And by the way, if everyone would do that, this horror would go away. This horror that plagues our country of emotional uh, perceptions of, of, of hatred and hating those that hate and all the stuff that is uh, going on today would, would really would get our eyes back on the ball and get back to work. But that's my prayer request. Today we're looking in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 at what I'm calling the steward's prayer. I've given you some notes for that. The steward's prayer, the Apostle Paul's uh, culmination of the mystery doctrine of the church comes uh, down to this awesome prayer that he prays and it's very involved. So I've, I've given you some notes. And um, the kinds of things Paul prays for are the kinds of things we desperately need, like the indwelling spirit to empower us in the inner man and like uh, the Lord Jesus to reside in us. Not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to saved believers, but he's praying that Jesus, that, that the Christ would reside in our hearts through the faith, through the faith. This is the filling of the spirit with the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. And it's an awesome thing that Paul prays for. These are the things we really, we really need. We may all die of the flu. We may all uh, go up in a big conflagration of civil war, but we're going to do it filled by the spirit. We're going to do it every day walking in the power that God has given us. And then the temporal things, these details, they take their proper place. We'll serve the Lord and whatever he's entrusted to us and our historical circumstance. It, that's my prayer list. Is there anything else besides we're praying for the Spielman family and, and Heidi and Joe and, and their siblings? Are there anyone else uh, that needs a special prayer that we might mention this morning? If I put the little lectern out, would you have a prayer request? Okay, now prayer request light is lit. Anything else we might mention? Are y'all ready to uh, be done with COVID-19? Well, let's pray for that. Yeah. That's right, Linda, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's part of what you're doing is you're helping me remember my uh, running prayer list because I don't have it in front of me. Um, Linda Boyden had um, an emergency appendectomy on, I believe, Wednesday, Wednesday night or Thursday morning at midnight. And um, she's doing well. And uh, we're, we're glad she was able to do that, receive that care uh, here at Bacchus. And um, so please be in prayer for Linda, for her recovery, uh, avoidance of infection, these kinds of things. 
Camparete is serving up a, um, an online webinar this week. You can pray for that, <clears throat> please. Getting the young people together is, a, is an ongoing challenge um, because they're, they're home and they're not going to school and we don't want them to get sick and so we've canceled all the summer. And so that's really hard um, for young people. So be in prayer for your young people. And Mike has done a fantastic job with our bulletin and which is available online. And so we do want to keep putting these things in front of you. Monday morning, that's tomorrow. Glee Boyd is, is, uh, is undergoing uh, hip replacement surgery. Um, and uh, so all the things that go with a, a surgery like this. I think he said she's 90 years old. That is awesome. So please be in prayer for her and that. My mother-in-law, Beverly, has... Uh, she had a diagnosis of ALS um, last, this time last year, and they've upgraded that to a nerve, a nerve damage um, condition that has robbed her of her speech. And we hope to see her this, this next weekend, but please be in prayer for my mother-in-law, Beverly Eberhard. And our, our beloved Jack Hayes is in need of a hip replacement surgery. Or, or some sort of intervention on his good side, which is really his bad side. He's, he's in a pickle and um, God has him right where he wants him. So please be in prayer for him about that. We have a praise. Joyce Mann had, had shared prayer requests that her cousin Bruce was in the hospital with COVID-19 um, and declining. Um, and um, he turned around and, and he's, looks like he's on the mend and maybe headed home soon. So uh, Joyce Mann's cousin, Bruce. And of course, we always want to mention Jan Gardner and her ongoing uh, hardship with her health concerns. And uh, Dan Ingram with his, I believe, 10th round of chemo, which he's um, sustaining right now. And um, Lisa Baker with her uh, health condition. She's trying to get... Um, the benefits of some very excruciating treatment, uh, iron uh, replacement treatments, uh, iron infusions. It's very painful for her. Please be in prayer for uh, Lisa. And um, everyone else that, uh, that is struggling, we, we mentioned, I want you to keep this name in front of you, Cynthia Ambot. Cynthia Ambot, that's Gina Mackin's mother. Uh, has several health uh, challenges and has had to go home um, when she really needs um, treatment. And um, so please be in prayer for, for her. The Arete uh, thing, the camp online thing, y'all register for it if you wanna go on, camparete.com has a registration portal. And um, I believe it's a Zoom uh, meeting, but uh, the first one is uh, Monday here at 3 p.m. And uh, it's, it's ours. I'm the teacher for uh, the three and the five o'clock block, Eastern time. 
and uh, it's going to be a good time. So, all right, well, let's, uh, let's bring these prayer requests to the throne of grace. Father, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for the challenges before us in the time in which we live. You have marked us out from eternity past for such a time as this, and it is your intention that we would connect our time to your eternal purposes. Father, we don't know fully. We don't fully grasp what you're doing in history. That's the nature of our limitations by your design. But you've told us sufficiently that you have this all well in hand. So we trust you, Father, in in terms of the COVID-19 thing in our country and internationally, in terms of the economic uh, repercussions for the things that are happening right now as they're borrowing money at an unprecedented rate, which means they're going to have to print which means they're going to inflate the currency. Father, the things on the horizon, um, we trust you with them, with the year 2020. It's such a mess. Father, we make a mess. You resolve the conflict. You bring order out of chaos. And so we're trusting you with this, with our time. and looking for the blessed hope, our Savior's coming for us and your perfect timing. Father, we uh, thank you for protecting our church family. We, we don't know of anyone that's had this disease yet. We ask that you continue to protect us. And the things that we've mentioned, Lisa and Dan and Jan, Father uh, Heidi and her family and mourning the loss of Art, Art's wife, Heidi's mother, Linda and her recovery from surgery. We praise you for this, but ask for your encouragement and strength for her. Glee and what's coming for her tomorrow, that it would go well. Beverly, Jack, Bruce. Father, all those in our church family that have needs in this uh, temporal frame, we ask that you would meet those needs in your timing in a way that glorifies you. Father, our temporal needs are nothing compared to the glory that's coming. And we ask that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see the riches of your grace and our inheritance in Christ. We bring these requests in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Is the audio different today? Is it, is it like a little bit much for everyone? No? Okay. I feel like I'm on a reverbatron. Like, the, like Gary Cooper and Lou Gehrig. Like, but anyway, I think it's, uh, it gets okay. All right. If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to, um, as the notes say, Ephesians 3. You have my translation there of Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We're going to zoom in a little bit today for many reasons, one of which is that um, my equipment fail- is failing me up here. But um, that's what happens uh, when uh, Joel goes out of town, everything falls apart. Except up there. We have looked in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 313 at the mystery of the church, at Paul's special deposit. God gave him a special deposit of revelation that he didn't give anyone else. And Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, has this good news message to the Gentile world. He goes to the Jew first, but then to the Greek. And the message is this. There's a new organization called the church, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of Christ the body of Christ. And this new organization was at one point only Jewish because on the day of Pentecost, when we began, the Holy Spirit only came upon 
Jews. Jews of all the languages of the ancient Near East, of the Greco-Roman world. Jews of the diaspora who had come back for the Feast of Pentecost, as you read in Acts chapter 2, but only Israel. And the book of Acts shows you that that's not only what God was going to do as a new thing with Israel. He was going to take believing remnant Israel and then open the door to a new organization called the church, which would include the Gentiles. And it's not a Gentile church and a Jewish church. It's the church. That's what the definition of it is, that we're one new man in Christ Jesus. And the racial distinctions are uh, obliterated in terms of your position in Christ, your possession of the inheritance of Christ in the church. And that really matters. It really matters in the time in which we live. Eternal life matters, right? Being part of the body of Christ, a new creation in Christ is really our identity. And that's the way we need to think of ourselves. So that's a little bit of a summary of the doctrine the apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 3 13, which we covered in some detail last Sunday. And one of the key doctrines in this presentation of the church is to this Gentile audience, you have been reconciled. You who are once far off have been made near by the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the effects of the death that Christ died on the cross for us is our reconciliation to God. And therefore, because of our fellowship and communion with God, our communion with one another. In verse 11, for example, of chapter three, wait, no, 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 let me do that. Let me back up a little bit. In verse eight, Paul talks about this deposit that was given him in Ephesians three. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for the ages has been, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The deposit of this mystery of the church was given to Paul so he would preach it. And the church growing into learning who we are is somehow going to be a witness, a testimony to angelic majesties, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart on my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Remember verse 3 and verse 13, make, a, make a, like an inclusio in chapter 3. Remember that little discussion? And so, so much of Paul's special deposit of revelation has just been delivered. And it is then that he goes back to prayer. We've already had the contents of the apostles' prayers in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul says in verse 16, we don't cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul wants you to get a sense of God's omnipotence and its expression toward the church, toward we who believe. 
And, and so that, that's chapter one's prayer. I think that some of the most exquisite doctrine we have in the New Testament is in Paul's prayers, especially in Ephesians, which is just shot through with prayer. In verse, four, verse 14 of chapter three, we come to the prayer at the conclusion of Paul's delivery of this special revelation of the church, the one new man in Christ. And he says, on account of this, the stewardship of the mystery doctrine, which is for their glory, but requires his suffering. That's chapter thir- three, verses three through 13. On account of this previous context, I bend my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul prays, now notice this, to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do an inductive study of prayer in the New Testament, just limit it down to Paul if you like, and watch how Paul prays. What do you see? Who does Paul pray to? In Ephesians 3, verse 14, he bends his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom every family or people in heaven and on earth is named. So you've read through Ephesians 3, right? Many times, I'm sure. Some of you, I know you've read through it uh, dozens of times. What does it mean? What does Paul mean that every family under heaven receives its name from God the Father? Well, the truth is that it doesn't mean whatever we want it to mean. It doesn't mean whatever occurs to us. It doesn't, Holy Spirit magically occur to us with what he means. There's a contextual answer. Now, this is a great moment in Bible study history in your life if you've thought this through a little bit. What does it mean that every family receives its name from God the Father? It's just a little bit of an aside. Paul mentions the father and he's gonna go on and tell you his main sentence, but from whom every family or people in heaven and on earth is named. Well, I didn't understand that until I read it in Greek for good reason. Because it's a play on Greek words. Do you know what the Greek word for a father is? Pater, pater. And that's what Paul says, hapater, the father. And then in verse 14, from whom every family, that word family or people, patria. That's just the same word group, pater, patria. It's a play on words. And it makes you, see, Paul is using the word, if you don't see it, in Greek, if they didn't put a, they didn't put a footnote and say, Hey, this is Patria or in your little study Bible. That's why you have a study Bible. There ought to be a note. I don't know if yours has one, but there should be a note that Patria is a play on words of Pater. So like we have patriotism, Pater, Patriot, you know, we're patriotic. And I've always said like this, I'm patriotic with our country. As long as God is our father, you know, as long as we can sing the national hymn, God of our fathers. Right. And, and so what we're talking about here is God is the father before he ever created anything. Before there were ever any people, before there was ever any place for people to live, God was father, son, and spirit. 
and this is a misunderstanding people have, this verse will correct. I had a woman recently say to me, she came to visit church and she said, well, um, the one thing I don't like about the way you teach the Bible is that you still stick with father and son language. And we know from, I guess, Yale or whoever the local <laughs> good theologians are, you know, that we can move past this paternalistic language. We can move past this man-centered language and just talk about, you know, um, God uh, as whatever you want to fill in, first person, second person, third person. We're not stuck with this, this man language, father and son, because God is just using language to help us understand his relationships. He's not really a father and son. See, God is, is dealing with people and he wants us to understand what he's like. So he, he finds something in our culture and then uses that to sort of apply to himself. That's what, that's what they're saying. What we just did was acknowledge, we just admitted, in the, that's liberal theology, it's modern theology. What we just did was say, we're trying to make God in our image. And it's exactly backwards. I, there are other words I would like to say about it, but I'll just say it's exactly backwards. The truth is that God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. And the Father has made us in his image. The Son, the Spirit, they've made, God has made us in his image. And so we have fathers and sons and therefore can understand as an analogy to God, what he's like. We understand because of what he made us to be more about him because we're made in his image. So no, um, you can't do that. In fact, the whole notion of fatherhood derives from the eternally preexisting God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And fatherhood and see, patria, the origin of nations, the origin of people groups is Babel. When we first divide it off. And when you read that in Genesis chapter 11, the separation was according to families and languages. Families, clans, tribes, and languages. And the languages coincided with the tribe and clan and family. And it does arise out of patria, father. I think Paul is saying that when he says, from whom every people in heaven and on earth is named. He bends his knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in your notes, which I can't show you because I've been locked out because we're in a war people and that's just how it works. But um, the second line here has, it's in bold and underlined. And what I've done in the notes, you'll really like this. It'll take your mind off whatever you're dealing with over there. Um, in the notes, you can see I'm tracing out the main thought because Paul throws in a little aside from whom everyone on heaven and earth gets their name. Well, that's not his main line thought. And if you just run that down, like we just did, you'll miss the point. It's there, it's important, it's part of his thought. But the main line is, I bend my knees to the Father in prayer so that he will give you. I pray to God that he will give you, that's the second thing that's bold and underlined, according to the wealth of his glory, which is the storehouse that he's got to give you from, according to what he and only he can give you, I pray that my father will give you to be strengthened. And your Bible might translate it, grant that you be strengthened. That's fine. The word is didomi. It means to give. 
And so where will you get your strength? We talked about this two Wednesdays ago. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made complete in your weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The power that Paul prays that the Ephesians and by extension you and I are supposed to receive only comes from God. It doesn't come from God plus me a little bit. It doesn't come from everything I could give and then whatever was left, there was nothing so God filled in the gaps, the God of the gaps. No, no, no. The power that Paul prays for you to receive is from God, from his storehouse of his glory, the wealth of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened with power through his, that's his Holy Spirit in the inner man. So does Paul pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit? No. He is praying for people who have received the Holy Spirit to enjoy the strengthening, the empowerment from the Spirit. That's what he's requesting. Do we need that? Every day, all the time. To be strengthened with power through his spirit and the inner man. And then there's a second thing he prays for. There's no chi, there's no and, but it's an additional statement. And it could be a long appositional clause saying, which equals this thought is the same thought. Listen to what he says. That the Christ, ha Christos. Did you get notes? Okay, all right. That the Christ reside in your hearts through the faith. Okay, okay, okay. I know what that means. I've read through it 15 times. I know what that means. That means that if you believe in Christ, then Christ lives in you. And he's talking to people that he wants them to believe in Christ so that Christ will live in them. No, he's talking to the saints in Ephesus. He's talking to you believers who have the Holy Spirit living in you. He's talking to you who have been declared righteous by a forensic act of God on the point of your faith in Jesus Christ. We've read Romans. That's the, largely the point of Romans. Justification is a settled thing. And the giving of, of God's life to you because of that grace transaction is a settled thing. And you, you are a new creature in Christ. But you're not complete. You're a work in progress. He's talking to us. If you will, this is phase two, sanctification language. And this is something Jesus talks about in John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. And it is nothing less than fellowship with God. It is nothing less than the spiritual life that we've been talking about and talking about and talking about. That Jesus Christ reside in your hearts through ha, the faith. Through the ha, pistis, the faith. Maybe it's hey, pistis through the faith. He isn't talking about you believing when he says the faith. He's talking about what you believe. This is the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. Let's read it here, it says. I bend my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ so that he give to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man that the Christ reside in your hearts through the faith. Do you need to trust in him in what he said? So that this, yes, of course. But he's talking about the residence of the faith in you. And that's a little bit different than I believe what he says. That's I have believed what he says and it is in me. I am being filled by the spirit 
with the word of God. That's what he's talking about, the faith. With the result, participle must be interpreted, with the result that you've been firmly rooted and grounded in love. If the word of Christ and therefore the person of Christ in a fellowship sense is resident in you, if you are being an expression of the character of Jesus Christ, read it in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus right there is supposed to be produced in you. Read about it in 2 Peter 1. If you do this, if you supply this, then supply this, then supply this. These character qualities that are the Lord Jesus Christ character qualities. Here he says he asks the Father that you be strengthened by the Spirit and that the, the Lord Jesus reside in your hearts through the faith, through the word that he has given you, the body of truth that you believe. And the result will be that you have been firmly rooted and grounded in love. Of course, if the Lord Jesus is present, then his agape is expressed and you are stabilized, you are strengthened because you know that the right answer is agape. What is agape? It's where I want what God wants for the other person. And I don't stop with the wanting, I go after it. And I'll do that with prayer. I'll do that with whatever I can do. The result of the residence of Christ in this sense of through the faith, in your hearts through the faith, the Apostle Peter alludes to this when he says the day star, when the day star rises in your hearts. This is an expression of Christ through you and the power of the Holy Spirit with his word that you have taken in and you are now believing and executing. When you've been ro firmly rooted and grounded in love so that you're empowered to grasp with all the saints what's the width, the length, the depth, and the height. Again, if you are like me, you've read through Ephesians 3 and you've said, huh, four dimensions. I wonder what that refers to. We'll wait till the pastor tells us. Pastor reads through it. Oh, four dimensions. I wonder what that's about. I'll wait till God tells me. Well, the truth is that God did tell us and he told us through the pen of the Apostle Paul in the context, it's always the answer. If you trace out the main line of Paul's reasoning, you can see what this width, length, depth, and height is. I've seen people try to do stuff with this and they, they, oh, they try to intuit and, and um you get this whole effort of intuitors, these, uh, these jumpers to conclusions and intuitors, these mystics that will try to come up with something more impressive than the last guy about what the unknown quantity is. Oh, I know what the width and the height meant. Paul's tracing out a model for you of the love of Christ. That's what he's talking about in context. And I've tried to show you that on the notes here. What is the width and the length and the depth and the height? Why would he give four dimensions? Well, one of those is redundant, technically, if you're really looking at the three-dimensional model. Let's do it real quick. This is a, what do you call a, 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 
like a square prism. You know, it's a rectangular um, on one plane, but then you've got rectangles on the other plane. So it's, it's all 90 degrees. I forget what you call that, but this is a, a, a rectangle or a parallelogram and then the three-dimensional solid object, right? So um, on this plane, you've got um, width and length. There's a width and there's a length. You with me so far of the object we're tracing out? Okay, and then when you turn it on its side, right, it's got a height and a depth. So you described the thing from two different directions. That's it. It's probably, I mean, it's just a solid object. He's saying that you could trace out the dimensions and see something that can't be seen. And here, believers, don't glaze over. Get this, get this. We are walking by faith, not by sight. He's saying there's something the eyes of your heart need to be able to see and you can't physically see it. You can only get this by meditation on the word of Christ, which we're doing right now. That's what he's saying. And so the spiritual life with its spiritual information will give you this perspective where you will fully grasp, and that's the word I've chosen to translate, that you will be fully empowered to grasp. All those words are in the Greek. They're intentional. And it, it means grasp in terms of your understanding, that you'll be able to get hold of something that cannot be seen as though it was a solid object. That's what he's talking about. That you'll be able to grasp with all the saints what is the width, the length, the height, the depth, and the height. Indeed, to know the love of Christ. That's the solid thing that he's talking about. Oh, I thought there was something way bigger. You don't think bigly enough about the love of Christ. We don't think enough. If we're fully rooted and grounded, empowered, and stabilized by agape love. Not that just that God loves us, but that he's expressing his love through us that we know what we're supposed to be about. So that we're fully empowered to grasp with all the saints what's the width, length, depth, and height. Indeed, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now there's a fun play on words. Look what he says. To know, gnosko, the love of Christ, which superabounds or surpasses Ekbalo or katabalo that surpasses gnosis. Gnosko and gnosis are like synonymous words. Gnosko is the word to know. Gnosis is knowledge. Well, we've got to imply, apply someone's theological, technical language. No, just let Paul speak. You don't need to develop something technical that Paul isn't doing. He says, you're going to come to know something in a personal experiential sense that cannot be known in merely a cognitive way. It's not just knowing about God. It's not just knowing about the love of God. This love of Christ surpasses just mere cognition. It involves knowing about it, but knowing it from experience that you come face to face with this. And that's a transformational process that God is bringing us through. It's called spiritual growth and maturity. This knowledge, the, the, indeed, that you know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and there is an outcome that he says, the intentional outcome, so that you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God, which we've heard is a characteristic of Jesus. 
that you be filled up to all the fullness of God. What does that mean? All the fullness of God. Every aspect of God's self-expression, which he wants and will bring forth through you is in view when it says filled up to all the fullness of God. Doesn't make you God. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying God is fully expressing himself through you, filled up to all the fullness of God. God could fill more, but you have a limitation. <laughs> and your finite self-expression of who God is, okay, you're human, but he's showing himself through you. And that is very important to understand what follows when he talks about walking as children of the light. And this is the fruit of the light. Be imitators of God as beloved children. All that is going to follow comes out of this idea where Paul is painting this beautiful picture of language that we use very commonly. And it sounds very mundane when I say he's talking about fellowship with God, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and so the Christian spiritual life. But look at how he says it. Let's run through it again. Think about, think these thoughts together. Think about this. I bend my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom every family or people in heaven on earth is named. I bend my knees so that he will give to you. I'm requesting that he give to you according to his wealth and glory, not us, to be strengthened with power through his spirit, the Holy Spirit in the inner man. This is not physical. This is character. That the Christ reside in your hearts through the faith. That the character of Jesus Christ, I'm comfortable with the person of Christ residing in your hearts through the faith. This is thinking God's thoughts after him because God is present in you with the result that you've been firmly rooted and grounded in love because of the residence of Christ through the word that I'm trusting him, that I'm absorbing, that I'm thinking, then I have this expression, this firm rooting and grounding in love so that I'll be fully empowered by this grace of God, by this and dwelling of the spirit of Christ, of Christ himself, so that you'll be empowered to grasp understanding, to grasp in your understanding with all the saints, what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ. That you'll be able to sense, see it, to know it. And that's an experiential knowing which surpasses knowledge so that you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. I've challenged you at times to pray Paul's prayers, memorize some of the things Paul says. I don't know if there's a more theologically dense description of what God wants to do with us than this steward's prayer. I'm calling it steward's prayer, the steward's prayer, because Paul has just delivered this stewardship, explaining the ministry of the gospel of the church, the good news of the mystery that we are one new man in Christ. And then he offers this prayer. He's praying that you enjoy real spiritual life. Not that you just know about God, not that you have a full notebook, but that you really enjoy your creator, that you enjoy his design for you, which is for rapport with him. And I think one of the key things here is the power of the Holy Spirit through the faith, through that which he's deposited in the apostles and prophets, that you would meditate on the scriptures day and night and so be <clears throat> stabilized, planted like a tree firmly planted by rivers of 
living water. I say in the notes, if you read through this logically a few times, some salient features of God's way of maturing Christians become evident. And what follows is 11 questions that this passage answers. 11 questions you might ask that this passage answers. Let me give you a few examples. First question, how are all human beings related to God? And the answer is he's the creator and the naming conventions we use show us as much. We call people people groups, patria, and we come from, from pater, from the father. So he is the creator of all and everyone is his image bearer. And this is a very important statement, not about universal salvation, but about universal responsibility. Man is responsible to his creator, whether he embraces the Jewish God, who is the creator of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether he embraces God or not, he's responsible to him. Uh, and the reason why, when people say, well, I mean, it really seems like an American thing, or really, you know, before it was a British thing, before it was a continental thing, um, or, and before, way back, it was the Roman Empire, and before that, it was, it was God dealing with Israel. So, I mean, it, it seems kind of ethnic or something. Well, um, the answer to that is that all the nations, all the people of planet Earth decided to say no to God a second time after the flood. And you read about that big saying of no in Genesis chapter 11. And the judgment of the nations by separating them into languages and confusing the languages was a protection of man against God's wrath, God's temporal wrath on man's rebellion against him. God has a breaking point, if you will. He has, he'll go so far and then my spirit will strive with man only so long, he says in Genesis 6. I'm not saying you break God, obviously. I'm saying there's a point where the grace period ends. And he wanted to extend that. So he's confused the languages so that man would not fully just totally express his sinful rebellion against God as he was trying to do at Babel. And then God calls one man and starts a new people. That's Genesis 12. It really, the Bible tells you the answer. Why, well, what about all the other people? All the other people said no to God. And... So we, we all relate to God, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether mama taught you about Jesus as a little kid or not. Everybody on planet earth is gonna have to deal with God, the father who sent his son to die for the sins of the world. Second question, for what in our passage does Paul pray? What does he pray for? All that follows through verse 19, which begins with a prayer for God's supernatural strength. He prays for two key things. So that he give to you, according to the wealth of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And also, he prays that Christ would live in you through the faith. Live in your hearts. He would reside. He would take up residence in your hearts through the faith. And that's what the little diagram I've given you shows. The two things that Paul is praying for may be the same thing. It's at least the si simultaneous thing that happens. That if the Holy Spirit is strengthening you inside, if he's expressing the power of God through you, then he's doing it in the direction God wants to do. And what he wants is for you to think his thoughts, to be an expression of his character. And that is in obedience. And that in John 14, 21 and 23 
is the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus said, my father and I will come and abide with you if you keep my commandments. What kind of strength, third question, what kind of strength is in view in verse 14? The answer, that which is in accordance with the standard of the wealth of God's glory, only divine power, not human power. That's the kind of strength that's right there in the passage. He tells you that that's what we're after. This is something you cannot do on your own. We're asking for God to do it. I say it this way. The filling ministry of the Spirit through the Word of Christ requires some some discipline about the Word. It requires some intentionality, some prioritization. But you can't make it happen. You can set conditions in your life. And most importantly, don't stop it. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't stop Him from doing what He wants to do. Well, God, the Holy Spirit's omnipotent and sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, and he sovereignly, according to the Father's plan, has made an arrangement with you where you're responsible not to quench the Spirit. And that's the scriptures. That's not human reasoning and and mere theology, mere theologizing. That's what the Bible says. So, fourth question. Where does the strength come from? God alone gives it to us, and it is through the agency of God, the Holy Spirit, residing in us. It's from God and the wealth of his glory, but it is especially the power of God, the Holy Spirit, through us. Do you understand by asking these questions, seeing what, what Paul's, what, what he's teaching us, you are correcting and informing and reinforcing your theological categories. The most important of which is the most obvious. What should I be praying for? for others and for myself. What should be my priorities of prayer? Fifth question, in what sense are we to be strengthened? In the inner man, right? Strengthen the inner man. This is spiritual strength. And sixth question, what else does Paul ask for God to give us? What else does he ask for? That the Christ reside in your hearts through the faith. Six point one. Is it therefore possible for you to be a saint, according to Ephesians one, and it not be that Christ reside in your hearts through the faith? Is it possible to be saved, if you will, or regenerate? One of those set apart to God in that positional sense that he's talking about when he calls them saints. Is it possible to be in Christ positionally and not Christ be in you experientially in the sense that he's talking about here. I think absolutely it's possible. Huh? He wouldn't ask. See what I mean? Believers, you want that. You're not like, oh, I have that. You want this. Maybe you do have this. Maybe you enjoy some sustained periods of this, but he's talking about Christian spirituality. And the way he describes it here really puts it on a different plane when you, if you're just used to throwing away around the language of fellowship while well, we're, we're in fellowship or, um, or, you know, being filled by the Spirit. This is, this is the context out of which Ephesians 5.18 and following will grow, our classic place that talks about the filling of the Spirit. Seventh question, what is the desired result of the residence of Christ in our hearts through the faith. What is the desired result? Last page, 
What is God's desired result of the Holy Spirit living in your heart, or sorry, Jesus Christ, the Christ residing, taking up residence in your heart, the inner core of you, that, that's what the heart means, the immaterial inner core, not one half of the soul, okay, at all, ever. <laughs> it just means the core that does the thinking and also the grieving and the rejoicing, if you do this, the word study, heart, the inner you. When Christ takes up residence, katoikeo, when he lives there, what is the desired result? Well, with the result that you've been firmly rooted and grounded in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the love of Christ has been poured, love of God has been poured out in our hearts in Romans 5. I thought it would be something so much cooler, you know. I could think of all kinds of neat words to describe the effect of Christ in, wait a second, love. The love that he commands us, that you love one another as I've loved you. That's it. And so if you're struggling with that, I don't really love like that. All this love, love, love. I'm sorry about the constraints of the English language. I don't like the word either. Because we silly, we, we're silly and we think it means affection. We think it means a hug. I think it means boys and girls get each other. They're into one another. They love each other. We think that's what it means, but it doesn't. For God so agapao, for God loved the world this way he gave his son. It's so much bigger and you, you really need to get to where you think through what that love is, what that love rationale means. And that, that'll happen as the word of Christ richly dwells within you. So, Sometimes our love's a little shaky, but if we're walking with God in the way he wants us to so that Jesus is resident in us through the faith, then we're gonna be not shaky on agapao, agapao, on love. We're gonna be a stable exponent, expression of the love of God. Eighth question, what does the stabilizing ministry of the resident Christ in our hearts I'm sorry, does the stabilizing ministry of Christ in our hearts relate to the strength in the inner man by the Holy Spirit? I don't answer it, but I think that this is what you call an appositional clause. I think that these two, these two things are different sides of the same coin. I think the Holy Spirit strengthening you in the inner man and Jesus taking up residence in you through the faith are the same spirituality, but you have different persons of the Trinity involved. And notice that Paul is asking that the Father would make this so. I bend my knees to the Father so that the Spirit would express God's strength through you and so that the Son would take up residence in you and you'd be rooted and grounded in love. It's Trinitarian. Ninth, what is the purpose of this rooting and grounding, stabilizing ministry in love? What's the purpose? So that you will be fully empowered to grasp, and that means understand, to grasp mentally, to, to, to get hold of the concept, conceptualize, so that you will be fully empowered to grasp with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height. That's the answer in context. But let me, let me 
put that into a little bit of a paraphrase so you'll so we'll understand how that how we live that so that what is invisible to you and you have no sensitivity for unless God gives you some sensitivity becomes something you personally know like you could see it as a three-dimensional model so, so that the, the love of Jesus Christ the love that he loves with the love that he loves you with the love that he calls you to love with becomes almost like something you could physically see indeed to know so what does the four dimensions we are to know refer in the 10th question we've already answered that to know the love of christ which surpasses knowledge to know something that you can't know if you will to have a personal experiential knowledge of something that goes beyond cognitive processes and i don't i'm not saying oh so it's just emotion i just really feel my heart's a flutter with with the love of christ that's why People in the church need to have the rosy glow and they, they have a church personality. You know, that, that some people buy that. Some people really go for the sweet, sweetness and light um, personality thing. And that's where the spirit's evident. And I, I, I don't think that's how it works. I'm committed. I'm dogmatically certain that's not how it works. God's going to take your personality and he's going to make out of you what he wants. And it will not be a cookie cutter, rosy glow. You're not always going to feel so, so, so sweet, as we say down south. But you are going to be an expression of this love. There's a little bit of depth, in other words. If, I feel like if the church finds something and it's in the shallow water, we probably need to keep looking. Keep digging. What he's talking about is a little deeper than a certain kind of expression, a certain kind of sweetness. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, to experience not just the reception of it, but the giving of it. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what I mean when I say the, the concept of joy is irrelevant to the culture we live in? Do you know what I mean by that? The concept of joy. The kids don't want joy. What do they want? Fun. They'll trade joy for fun like they'll trade an apple for a piece of cake any day. Right? Bad analogy, because if you really understood what joy was, it's way better than an apple's better than cake. Apple's good for you. Cake isn't good for you. Let's do something a little bit. We, we, we're trying to apply our sinful perceptions, our sinful sensibilities to something that is not just physical. What I'm trying to say is the love of Christ is not something that we automatically are rooted and grounded in. It's not something automatically that we grasp, that we sense, that we know we're receiving or that we know we're responsible and capable of delivering. But it's something Paul prays, just like in chapter one, the eyes of your heart to be open. He's asking that God would make this so real to you. And apparently God alone can do it. I believe that our role involves the faith. Jesus commanded that we would make disciples by, for Christians, teaching them to keep all that he commanded. 
So we're in the Word, in the Word, in the Word, in the Word. And if the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within you and the power, the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, which I think is what he's talking about here, then the desired outcome will be this apprehension, this grasping of the love of Christ. That seems to be what the Greek is doing. And that's why we have anything to say today because we have it from Paul. This means we come to know something experientially we can, that cannot be known with mere cognition. You have to get in that box, that four-dimensional, really three-dimensional box. You have to get inside it kind of to understand it. It is a personal encounter with the love of God through Jesus Christ. And so my 11th question, what is God's purpose in our coming to know the love of Christ, which is beyond cognitive comprehension, our being filled up to all the fullness of God? That's it so that we will be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is what we need. This is why we come. There may be deeper things to gain, to gain from an observation, examination, meditation on this passage, but I think we found some depth. We're looking for a supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit and God the Son in us through the Word. We're looking for the supernatural work where we truly are an expression of this so great salvation, this expression of the love of Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of the steward's prayer in Ephesians 3. Thank you for the challenge to our concentration. So many things that are involved and complicated and need our, our prayerful consideration. Thank you also for the model, the example the Apostle Paul has given us in how to pray for one another. It can't be said any better, Father. Strengthen us with power through your spirit and the inner man. Let your son reside, take up residence in our hearts through the faith so that we can know, we can grasp the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Fill us up with all the fullness that you want to express through us, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.